Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want, to insist, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, by your spirit, would you now open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things in your word. Amen. How do you, how do you define success or failure? Your, your definition of success, your definition of failure determines the way you think and live and work and make plans for the future. It'll determine the things that you pursue and the things that you avoid. So if your definition of success is that classic materialistic maxim, uh, he or she who dies with the most toys wins, you're going to think and you're going to live in particular ways. If your definition of failure is disappointing your peers or your family or your professional colleagues, you're going to think and plan and live in certain definite ways. You're going to avoid uh, that particular definition of failure. So how should a Christian, how should a, a church like Christ Church define success and failure? Because based on that definition, our lives, the life of the church, will be shaped. Uh, Rico Tice, he's a, a British Anglican pastor and writer. He's the host of our, our, our weekly uh, video study through Mark's Gospel that some of us have done. Uh, he defined success and failure this way. He said, success is hearing, well done, from the only lips that matter. Failure is being successful at things that don't truly matter at all. Now, this is what Rico's saying. Success uh, as an individual, as an individual Christian, as a church, is hearing God himself on the final day say to you, well done. You've been faithful. You've been hardworking. You've trusted in me and the things that I've said. You've, you've gone after things that are excellent and profitable. And failure is finding out that we've spent all of our time, our attention, our affection on things that will be shown to be on that final day unprofitable and worthless. 
In our section of Titus that we're looking at again, primarily verses 8 through 11, Paul is telling the church in Crete that what it'll take them to be successful in the end and how to avoid failure. And so this is, this is our question together this morning. What makes a successful church? What makes a successful church? And this text is going to show us uh, three essential elements, three foci for a successful church. And so this is the first. A successful church first insists and stresses on the gospel. This is what it means to be successful as a church. We insist on and stress the gospel of Jesus. Starting in verse 8, you see Paul saying, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. The saying that Paul is referring to is the gospel message, the good news that he's just spoken of in verses 4 through 7, what we talked about in last week's sermon. It was great. You can go online. You can listen to it, okay, if you missed it. But the good news, it can be summarized in just three words, the words that, are, that begin verse 5. He saved us. Again, this is something that we talked about a lot yesterday, uh, last week. Uh, you could, in other three words, you could say, God saves sinners. That is the good news. Jesus Christ came for the sick and not for the well. He came for sinners and sufferers, not the righteous. If you are here this morning and you have been broken by sin, your sin, the sin of others, Christ gave himself on the cross for this reason, to bring back sinners and sufferers, to restore them to health. You are called to believe this gospel. God so loved the world that he gave himself, he gave his son to restore and to renew you. You're called to trust in him, to trust in this gospel and not another one so that it can bring you to life, bring you back to him. And Paul tells the Christians in Crete, he tells Titus, you got to insist on this gospel. You got to spend lots of your time urging, stressing, constantly repeating the gospel message. This is priority numero uno for you and for the churches growing in Crete. It's the good news that the church is called to hold on to, but it's also the, the, the good news that the church is called to hold out to the lost and to the suffering in our world. This is good news for all people, not just Christian people. Paul says of this good news that it is uh, trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy, not that it's True, though of course it is true, but that it's foundational. It's trustworthy in the sense that it's, it's central, it's, it's safe to build your whole life on. Everything that you believe can be based in this. Uh, when everything in your life is shaking and uncertain, the gospel message is trustworthy. It'll stand strong. When your relationships feel strained, when you are struggling with sin, when your health is failing, when your career is not all that you imagined it to be, when your life prospects are not what you had hoped, you worry for your kids. You wonder if God even cares. The gospel message alone is the trustworthy anchor for your soul, for the anxieties and troubles that you face. Paul is saying, Titus, don't lose this. If you want to be successful in Crete, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And so a successful church's first and primary priority, listen, is to insist on and stress the gospel. Uh, the second essential element for a successful church is related to this first one, and it's this. A successful church then carefully devotes herself to good works. First, we insist on and stress the gospel. Then, as a consequence of that, and without taking our foot off the gas pedal of the gospel, we carefully devote ourselves to good works. There's a reason that Paul wants Titus to continuously insist on the gospel. Look at it in the text. Look at verse 8. He says, the saying, the gospel, is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that, this is a purpose statement, so that those who have believed in God, those who have believed in the gospel, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things, belief in the gospel and the devotion to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. We looked at this a few weeks ago in Titus, in chapters 2, uh, and also in, ver- in chapter 1, um, this essential pairing uh, between gospel belief and good works. These two things go hand in hand. Christ gave himself both to save and to sanctify us, both to give us hope in eternal life with him in the future, but also to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul saying a successful church is not successful, listen, if it only keeps on insisting on the gospel. A successful church does so, so that her people will carefully devote themselves to doing good works. Now, just a few points to build on this idea. The first is this, the ordering of faith and works is essential. We have to keep the order right in our minds. We've spoken of this too in previous sermons. Just go ahead, go online, listen to the entire Titus series. It's the gift that keeps on giving. That's a joke. Okay, getting, getting uh, what we said a, a few services ago was we have to get the indicatives of the gospel straight before we get the imperatives of godliness. We have to settle who we are in Christ before we can figure out what we're supposed to do. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15 where he describes the vibrant, fruitful life. Rescued people are called to live lives in love and, and faithful obedience, but it's, it's not actually in them. It's in their union with Christ. This is uh, John 15. Jesus says to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. He has no life in himself, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus uses this very potent image to say faith comes before works. Faith unites us with Jesus, and only then, united to Christ, can we bear fruit. Uh, we could say it, we could say it, it's been said in a variety of different ways, but good works are the result of a living faith. They necessarily come after. Or another way to say it is good works are the evidence, the proof that we have a living faith, but they are not its source. Apart from Jesus, Jesus is very clear. We are dry and we're dead. We're unwilling and unable to do the good that he made us to do. But once we're connected to him by faith through the good news, when we trust in him and turn from our sins and cling to him, we can finally be set free to be fruitful. So if we want to do good works as individuals and as a church, uh, which, which we ought to, this proper ordering of faith leading to works is essential. Salvation precedes sanctification. But the second caveat that we need to have as we're thinking about the second point is care and devotion to good works is also essential. Care and devotion to good works is also essential. According to the scriptures, the ordering of faith and works is essential, but so is our attentive care and our focus and our devotion to doing good works together and as individuals. That's what verse 8 says very clearly. The gospel saying is trustworthy. They want you to insist on that so that those who have believed in the gospel, check, we've got our faith, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And these things, both faith and good works, 
are excellent. They're profitable to people. Jesus is saying in John 15 is sometimes uh, a bit confused. It's certainly describing to us the source of our power to do what's good. It's the Spirit's power in us, not something in ourselves. However, what Jesus is not saying in John 15, he's not describing to you the type of effort it'll actually take for Christians to do good works. He's not talking about the labor requirements. Doing good works is not easy. It's not easy. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't care. It doesn't come unless we are careful and devoted to doing these things. Doing good works actually requires our effort. It requires planning. Faith is absolutely necessary for doing good works. You cannot do good works apart from faith. But God also says that doing good works will require intentionality and concentration and and some planning. It demands that we be active and engaged and thoughtful. The images the Bible gives for the level of effort it takes for gospel-believing Christians to be faithful and fruitful in their lives is not the image of like a vacationer, you know, on a beach chair and just saying like, I've got so much faith that the good deeds just roll. You know, they're just, they're just going to come out of my fingertips somehow. No. God gives images of some really hardworking folks. Soldiers. Athletes. Farmers. Right? Paul, Paul gives these three um, images to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he's giving him instructions on succeeding in his calling as a pastor. He's preparing him. He's warning him of the effort and commitment it'll actually take. Paul says, Timothy, if you want to be successful at doing the good works that God has planned for you, you need to be careful and live like a soldier. Have the mindset of a soldier. To do good will mean you'll have to cut out certain civilian pursuits that the people around you are just pursuing at will. You're doing that for a particular purpose so that you can please Christ, your enlisting officer. Timothy, you're going to have to live like an athlete. You'll need incredible self-discipline and focus. You can't live like everybody else. You can't have the same, you know, like diet and exercise routine. You're going to have to think ahead. You're going to have to get fit. You're going to need to strategize and prepare for the race that's set before you. Timothy, you must be devoted to good works in the same way that a hardworking farmer is devoted to his crops. To get a fruitful harvest will not happen automatically. You will need to toil the land and weed. It will require your blood, sweat, and tears, not just your good intentions. Friends, listen, to to be successful as a church, the gospel must be central. It must be foundational to you. But then, with the Spirit's help, you must plan with careful attentiveness good deeds or they won't happen. This This is some real talk for us, all right? Your compassion and your sympathy for the poor and needy in our city on its own will not feed or clothe a single solitary person. Your good intentions alone do not bless your neighbors in any way. Your desire for your friends to know Christ, if left without any effort on your part, will accomplish precisely nothing. So so we should maybe do some workshopping right now together to consider what care and devotion might look like. Here's one example. God has called his people to be financially generous. This is part of the good works that he's called us to, to give some of what he's given to us cheerfully and sacrificially to support the work of the gospel by giving uh, to the the church, um, to alleviate the very real suffering of the poor in our city and our world. But listen, 
This will only happen if you are careful and devoted to it. Do you have a plan to give? Like, have you thought about the very practical steps ahead of you? How much can I budget for? Uh, Will I start giving automatically or monthly, you know, by cash or by check? Am I giving an amount that's generous, that's sacrificial? How much is that? Faith, listen, is necessary for generosity. Only people who know deep in their hearts that in Christ they have everything they need. Only they can give rightly. They don't have to to give with clingy hearts. They can give cheerfully, knowing that in Christ they're fully cared for. But, listen, faith isn't sufficient on its own. You also then need to be careful and devoted to giving. What about serving other people? Are you careful in planning to be hospitable and welcoming to your neighbors to, to do good alongside the church? Or do you think it'll just happen because you've got Christian faith? Do you make an effort to get to know, you know, your coworkers and your neighbors well enough to know what practical needs they actually have? Do you set time aside in your calendar? You know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear out, you know, my Wednesdays and, you know, my Sunday mornings and, and, you know, every second Saturday when the church does second Saturday stuff so that I can spend time intentionally with, uh, you know, people from Christchurch. I can serve the city on these second Saturdays. See, faith is essential. It's necessary for serving others. We serve others wrongly unless we see ourselves, we see them, we see Christ rightly. But faith all by itself doesn't serve the needs of anyone. We also must then be careful and devoted to serving others, to plan for it. So what is a successful church? Where are we? A successful church insists on and stresses the gospel, never lets go of it. Then she carefully devotes herself to good works. The church is to plan and act and and, and to hustle for the kingdom. Finally, our third focus, the third focus of a successful church. A successful church avoids foolish controversies and people. Uh, Verses 9 through 11 in the text, Paul tells Titus that in order to focus on things that are excellent and profitable, that is good works and the gospel, he's going to have to not focus on certain things. Things that he says at the end of verse 9, he describes, if you look there, these things are unprofitable and worthless. This is addition through subtraction. Titus, if you want to keep the main thing the main thing, don't let peripheral, unimportant, unfruitful things start becoming the main thing for you. So Paul here particularly mentions contentious and divisive controversies and people. Uh, They existed then as they do now. Uh, people uh, People who just want to argue. They just want to explore speculative, unknowable theology. They want to stir people up, and they don't want to focus on the gospel that's been delivered to us, and they don't want to focus on good deeds. They want to do other stuff. Um, This could be people, um, you know, back then who also exist today who try to uh, decode hidden messages in the Bible, you know, via like numerology. So the number from this verse, if you add it to the number written in this verse equals 600, and if you divide that by the 12 tribes of Israel and you multiply it by the stars in the sky, you get finally the Bible's secret hidden message, which no one has really known until, until, until us you got to stop listening to your pastor. we got the secret message here. Or this could be people who stir up settled Christian orthodoxy and belief. The faith that is believed by everyone, always, uh, forever. In that time, it would be people who would uh, deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Say, no, he just came as a spirit. He, he wasn't actually a man. Or, or people who insisted that Christians continue to uh, be circumcised and keep all of the purity rituals of the Jewish law. Paul saying to Titus, listen, 
Avoid getting into these debates. Avoid uh, the silliness. Avoid arguing about what's affirmed by all Christians everywhere and always. In verse 10, Paul says that Titus should warn these people. He says him, assuming that's probably a guy. Unfortunately, that seems, seems to be the case. <laughs> uh, but uh, you're to warn, that, warn somebody who's divisive. Tell them, please stop it. No, no more of that in the church. That's, kind of, that's my job as a pastor. If there's someone in the church who's, who's trying to cause trouble, uh, I'm to talk to them about it, try to win them back, try to disciple them in what Christian orthodoxy is. But after that, the second time this person is trying to stir up trouble, end of verse 10, if you look at it, Paul says it bluntly, have nothing more to do with them. Just drop it. Don't engage them. Uh, we'd say don't feed the troll, right? They're trying to stir up division. Uh, they're trouble. So just cut off the oxygen supply of debate. A successful church, listen, is uh, must, in order for us to focus on what's excellent and profitable, we have to avoid foolish controversies in people. Uh, a few notes about what I'm not saying. There's something I'm not saying. Okay, the first is, this is not about avoiding good and hard questions about the Christian faith. I'm not going to, if you come up to me after the service and you ask me one question, I'm going I'm to give you one question. The second one, I've got nothing more to do with you, okay? Uh, that's not at all what's going on. If you, you can come to me over and over and over again with difficult questions, with your genuine doubts, with an eager mind, all right? This is not about uh, not digging deeply into uh, challenging things. Uh, the original Bibles of the, uh, the original languages of the Bible, trying to understand, you know, deeper or somewhat abstract theological concepts, you know, doing it for the glory of God. It's also not about loving, friendly, but often vigorous debates between, uh, Christian, between Christians about important uh, doctrinal issues that have, have given some distinctions to domination, uh, denominations and Christian traditions through the age. Paul's referring to, look at verse 10, you know, really clearly, to a person who stirs up division. Who is intentionally trying to stir up division? That word in Greek is heretikon. Uh, this is where we get our, our English word heretic, right? This is a person who knows better. They, they know the truth. They've actually received sound teaching, but they arrogantly think, I know better. Or, or, or my little group, my, my little theology group, we know better. Uh, that they have special knowledge that no Christians anywhere ever have attained to. This is a person who, despite knowing better, despite being warned uh, by pastors and, and Christians, they just plow ahead and they intentionally try to subvert um, the orthodox faith and practice of Christians. They, they attempt to divide the church. And so here's a reminder for us, friends. Again, if we want to focus together as a church on what's excellent and profitable, there are some people, some ideas in the public sphere, uh, books, podcasts, magazines, blogs, that we should just avoid. We, we shouldn't give them any air. Uh, these are ostensibly produced by Christians who make it sound like, hey, I'm just, I'm just asking questions. Yeah, yeah, I know this is new and radical, that no one's ever thought of this, uh, but Jesus was new and radical and fresh. Look, you shouldn't waste your time with it. These are people who bear the name of Christ, but who reject, or they outright deny, or twist settled Christian belief and practice, who reject universally held beliefs on the deity of Christ, uh, the God-givenness of human sexuality, uh, the reality of final judgment, and other things. You'll never be able to keep the main thing the main thing if you constantly pursue unprofitable and worthless diversions. The church has been given clear, unmistakable marching orders. 
uh, as, as Alistair Begg would say, uh, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. We're to insist on that, insist on the clear teaching of the gospel, to celebrate it, to preach it, to believe it, to share it. And then, as a consequence of that, we're to carefully devote ourselves to doing good works. And success is not only that, success is doing that while avoiding anything that distracts us to that end. Let's end here. Remember Rico's, Rico's definition of success and failure. Success is hearing God himself look at you and say, well done. Failure is being successful at things that will not truly matter in the end. So here's an evaluation question for you, for us as a church even. Is the life you're living right now successful in God's eyes? Is our life as a church, are we on the right track? Are we pursuing things that God has specifically told us, these things are excellent and profitable? Or are we eagerly building a successful you know, career and life, devoting ourselves to useless arguments or pursuing things that in the end don't truly matter at all? Now here's a, here's a harder question for you. Have you wasted time? Are you filled with regret? Are there hours and days and even years of wasted time that you can't get back, that you wish you could? Well, congratulations to you, because that means you qualify. The good news that you're called to insist on, you must insist to yourself right now. He saved us, verse 5 says, not because of works done by us in righteousness. He doesn't save the successful. (laughs) <laughs> the focused, those who do not waste their time. He rescues failures, people who have not been faithful as they, as they should. See, salvation is according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the good news is that Christ Jesus never wasted a moment of his life and through Christ's faithful working for his entire life and finally on the cross for us and for our sins, we have, who have pursued unprofitable and worthless things can fully be cleansed. And we can now be empowered to be carefully devoted to good works. As, as a church, as individuals, as we strive uh, in both forgiveness and faithfulness, um, what, what we ought to hope is to end our days. And on the last day, so, say something similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. We, we want to say, we worked harder than anyone Though it was not us, but the grace of God that is with us. Now may you, safely held by Christ, seek what's good as you await with hope the day where you will hear well done from the only lips that matter. Let's pray again. Father, we commit our times, we commit our church, we commit our plans and our desires, our days and our years and our whole selves to you. God, preserve and protect us, help us to, to be successful, to hear a well done from you. God, give us wisdom uh, to know the difference uh, between time well spent and time wasted. Uh, we offer ourselves to you. We ask that you'd fill us with your spirit so that we can do what is right and pleasing in your eyes. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.